Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week, I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of the skills that they possess. In these interviews, I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdom each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Today's interview is with Mark Berridge, the author of A Fraction Stronger. The inspiring story of one man's survival after a life-changing accident and finding the possibility in life's darkest moments. In a split second, Mark Berridge's life came crashing down. His bicycle understeered through a corner, catapulting him headfirst into a stormwater drain. A large piece of dislodged vertebrae compressed his spinal cord, causing devastating nerve damage. It is not about the fall, it's about how you choose to get up. Mark found the power within to become a fraction stronger every day. You'll find this interview with Mark Berridge He's just a nice guy, thrown into an impossible situation. This interview explores who Mark Berridge is and how he became a fraction stronger every day. At the time of his accident, Mark was an international negotiator for Rio Tinto in the iron ore arm of the business. A major negotiation skill is reducing the gap. Mark reduced the gap in his own head wherever he could to maximise his chance of rehabilitation rehabilitation. In this interview there is a great insight into leadership. A former boss of Mark's gave a redundant senior personal assistant a beautiful and heartfelt farewell in front of their peers. When Mark complimented his boss on the dignity of the farewell, his boss shared with Mark that farewells are not just only for the person going, but everyone who is still working for the company and it's all about culture. In this interview, there are references about support and where that comes from. In one of Mark's darkest moments, unable to move and in excruciating pain, an acquaintance, not someone he knew all that well, came into his room and told Mark a story about recovery. That support came at a crucial moment and gave Mark the will not to give up. There are references to another layer of support in this interview, the support of, of a physiotherapist who framed the way forward in such a way and in such a manner that Mark chose to keep moving forward when he was really thinking about giving up. There are also references in the interview to the importance of family and how the support of family can help get us through the toughest of times. Mark's story and interview shows all of us that we can become a fraction stronger every day. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. We have someone pretty special on the show today, um, a gentleman called Mark Berridge. I met Mark um, when I first started to consider uh, uh, writing a book. Mark was the first man that I spoke to, and he convinced me that writing a book is a pretty good idea. So we're just about to discuss um, what Mark, uh, Mark wrote a book. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. It's about his life. Um, it's about, I've got a promo here that I'll read out very shortly about it, but it's a kind of a a story for all of us, um, we have a vision of our life, 
then that vision gets turned upside down and um, and how do we fight our way back to create a life that um, we want to live and 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 that um, that we need a lot of guts to encourage to make it happen. So today's guest is an expert on lived adversity, having faced the challenge of a devastating spinal cord injury following an early morning cycling incident. Mark Berridge spent the next seven weeks in hospital and a further nine months regaining his mobility. He will pursue physical rehabilitation for the rest of his life to sustain the gains he has made and chase marginal improvements. The accident shattered his sense of identity, causing him to renegotiate his identity as a professional and as a husband and as a father. A father of three amazing and wonderful children, a husband of the amazing Lucy, passionate about cooking, traveling, photography, performing arts and sports. Mark Berridge now helps others find the possibility from their impossible moments. Welcome Mark Berridge to the family. Uh, to the family, to the podcast. Oh, <laughs> join the family. I mean, I've, you put all that pressure on me to be the first bloke you spoke about with a book. So, uh, you know, um, we, we are almost connected now forever. Uh, yeah. Thanks to that, you know, and it is, we can, let's just start there. I mean, you know, when you start the idea of writing a book, it is the amazing people that you meet um, and the courage they've got to put their stories out there that I think is one of the most special, special parts of that decision. And I, I never could have foreseen that when I started down that path. So I'm very grateful to have met you and so many other wonderful people that, that are just sharing wonderful things with the world. Yeah, the thing I, um, that, 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 I remember that first day I spoke to you, you know, while we're talking about writing a book, um, your authenticity and genuineness and just a nice bloke, nice person um, came through. So that's that's what that's what we're going to talk about today is that person um, having his life flipped upside down and um, and then what happened from that. So do you just want to go into um, briefly? Uh, I think probably that's a good place to start. We'll, we'll start with the accident and then let's then we'll reverse backwards from there and find out who you are, who Mark Berridge was before the accident and then how he had to find Mark Berridge, um, Mark II after the accident. So just, just do you want to go into the accident, Mark, if, if you're happy to start there? Totally happy. Um, yeah, so cycling at that point was my main um, outlet for, I guess, physical and mental um, release. And I was doing about 250Ks a week and there's just a typical Sunday morning ride. I was halfway through a 70-kilometre ride. Um, coming downhill slightly into a corner, hit a sunken piece of road, which caused the front wheel to have violent understeer. So I had to choose a crash decision, whatever was the better of bad options, and decided to crash straight ahead into a grassy park, knowing for well I'd go over the handlebars. But what I couldn't see was a five-foot stormwater drain um, that, that I catapulted myself into. So I sort of supermaned into that uh, left wrist, then head and shoulder. Um, took away my breath, enormous pain. Uh, I don't really re remember anything apart from just trying to hold on until the ambulance got there. Apparently, I did say that I had some pins and needles in my legs, but I never really sort of saw that as being um, a, ca a cause of fear. I just think that was associated that with being on, you know, my side in a ditch and being in a fair bit of shock. Uh, and then a few hours later, we heard the results of what had happened, and I'd fractured. T12, so if you put your hand on your ribs and sort of roll it round to your back, um, about that sort of level of your back, so mid-back, fracture T12 to about 40% of its original height and T11 to about 75% of its original height, but most materially 
a chunk of T12 about the size of um, a sugar cube. Um, that piece of vertebrae went into my spinal cord, pretty much compressing all of my spinal cord. So at the time, I remember, remember hearing more than 50% compression in your spinal cord. I later heard it was 80. Thank God I didn't hear it was that bad news on the first day. I think it probably helped that I didn't hear it as bad. Um, and yeah, from from there, felt pretty lost for a while and just, you know, slowly sort of chipped my way back from, from that point. So what were you doing? Because <clears throat> uh, I've read your book, so... Um... And the book, I, mean, I don't think we've even talked about what the book is called, which is very, very amiss of me. A book, the book is called A Fraction Stronger by Mark, Mark Berridge, Finding Belief and Possibilities in Life's Impossible Moments. And I don't, it's um, anyone watching um, you might, yeah, the Courage to Lead interview series has traditionally been an audio, but um, the last couple I've started to use video. So we might uh, start promoting them via video as well. Um, and if you're watching this video, you can see the book uh, sitting over Mark's right shoulder. Uh, it's a very eye-catching, um, eye-catching title page too. So it's well done there. So, um, so when you were uh, in the ditch and in the in the hospital, when did you know that you were in big trouble? You know that life had changed, and before you hit the ditch. Um, oh. I thought in, I thought in the book you were um, you were doing a last minute ride before an international air flight, weren't you? Yeah, the, the, that was funny because it sort of helped. Um, yeah, I was uh, scheduled to fly to Salt Lake City, so the exact I had a five hour operation to insert some uh, metalware into my back, and we'll talk about that some more. But um, while that was happening, that was the exact hour I should have been flying to Salt Lake City for a couple of weeks of project and a, a lovely little ski weekend in the middle of that two week project. Um, I'd been over there a few weeks before and just loved the Salt Lake skiing. So I was really looking forward to that. And I think that probably helped because I just didn't realise in the ditch how bad it was. I, mean, I knew I couldn't breathe. Um, what I didn't know was that was because all my muscles had contracted around my um, spine to protect the fractured vertebra. I just thought maybe I had hurt some ribs or something, and which I had as well. But you know, I didn't even feel any pain from the ribs for weeks. Um, but... I started to problem solve thinking, oh, well, I've missed tonight's flight, but if there's some way I can get on a flight Tuesday, uh, yeah. I might be all right. And it's so stupid in, in hindsight, of course, but I just, none of us, I don't think any of us expected it was that um, that serious. I mean, certainly a number, two of my friends that were cycling with me that day took photos and both of them uh, very quick to say these days they never would have taken those photos but for, you know, believing it wasn't anywhere near as serious as it was. So we we just didn't know in the ditch. Um, other than the extraordinary pain. And then, yeah, it was that three hours later when we got the results of the scans. And I think the best way to illustrate that is, you know, my wife is just amazing. She's so you know, beautiful and strong. And she'd been through bowel cancer herself a few years before um, and just been incredible through that journey. And I don't ever remember her really flinching as she went through that exercise, though that, you know, that health issue. But two years after um, my accident, we uh, she told me that, she was so impacted by that first briefing that she'd had to push herself into the wall so as not to fall down and you know, wow. getting around the corner into the nearest chair she could see. And to me, I think that because I could never really work out why I could remember stuff from the briefing, but she didn't seem to remember anything at all. She doesn't seem to miss anything else any other time. So I just couldn't believe it. But I think that just shows how, you know, how much we realized at that point in time that life could be very, very different. And I think that's a really good point. I, I um, 
I, I'm always interested where these um, Courage to Lead interviews go, but um, and it's really interesting that our lives <clears throat> aren't just our lives, they're about <clears throat> our lives with everyone else around me. And I really apologise for my voice today. I've got a bit of a, a throat cold or a head cold, so it's, I'm a bit croaky. <clears throat> but um, you just touched on the impact, like this impact, this uh, horrific accident had a massive impact on you, but it has a massive impact on your family as well well so um totally yeah, couldn't like couldn't be worse timing really and the eldest boy was doing year 12 daughter in year 11 um you know i think the eldest boy in particular really uh just found it very well very very uncomfortable to come see me in hospital uh, daughter wasn't that comfortable either you know it really was shocking i mean you know, one of the examples i can really think of is a you know former neighbor who's come in to see me on i think the second day and um it, just the look on his face when he came around the corner and saw me in the hospital bed and the words that came out were something along, along the lines of oh my god what have you done but it was the look on his face like like do i really look that bad like that that's when yeah. i looked in his face and these eyes and the way he responded to seeing me and so yeah that you know i can get why the kids didn't want to come see me in hospital and, and why it was just so you know tough for everyone but i'm at the same time as you said you know so it is a journey for everyone and so many people uh just were angels in my life and obviously that's a part of the book yeah. in terms of coming in and just supporting me and talking to me helping me to diffuse negative feelings i had helping me to regain belief and encourage and, and and yeah, just it was a, definitely a team journey. Like um, I'm on the front of it now because um, you know, I've written a book. But yeah, I was, the book's about celebrating the strength of all those people that helped me get through it. Lovely. So what what were what your, your promo um, has it in it a little bit? But what you were a high flying um, executive, weren't you? Um, like in corporate Australia, maybe internationally as well. Um, what what were you doing before the accident? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about high flying. I mean, you know, start as a, a graduate, and I, I wanted to lead companies. I definitely uh, had former bosses make comments about that to me in the future. You know, sorry, you know, uh, after um, a few years, they said, you know, you basically came in like you're going to take over the show eventually. So, definitely always wanted to be a high achiever in work. But over time, you know, you get your priorities change, and your kids and family become a higher priority than than really being a corporate high flyer. But I did. You know, I hit a general manager level within Rio Tinto Major International Mining Company and the role, you know, particularly the, I guess, the headline role I did for them as chief negotiator for the iron ore pricing based in Singapore, you know, was a tremendously uh, high profile, high pressure, high performance role that um, I absolutely loved in the end. I, you know, I think there was probably times in my career where I would have shied away from the responsibility of that role, but um, just, I guess, the negotiation coaching that I'd been through, the roles I'd had to that point in time, I sort of felt comfortable and I had an amazing team up there and we had a lot of fun as well as uh, achieving some great results for Rio and that, or Rio and the Australian economy in that time frame. So I guess that was the highest profile role I did was that chief negotiator for iron ore. Um, but yeah, sort of general manager, vice president level, mainly around sales and marketing um, activities, negotiation, business optimization. So never really top, top of the trees, but, you know, senior leader. Pretty high up. So, and what I, what I love about this interview series is um, is hearing hearing the stories about what made people who they are. So, you, you know, you just kind of touched on 
that. So Mark Berridge has 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 uh, been identified early on by his you know his former bosses as as you know real leadership potential, and you've developed yourself up into a role of um, chief negotiator for the international arm of Rio Tinto in Singapore. That's some serious skills. So kind of, um, do you want to talk about um, uh, a day in the moment of Mark Berridge as as a senior negotiator? Because <laughs> nego negotiators, oh, well. like in, in the cops, in the police, they have some real skills. Like They're people that make things happen when people don't want things to happen. So do you want to, which is pretty amazing. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Where, yeah. where did that come from? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think my mum had wanted me to be a, a lawyer and a barrister. I guess she sort of saw that I might have talents going that way. And um, yeah, I was pretty, let's call me lazy at university. I certainly was distracted. I, I lived on campus at UWA and and just made so many amazing friends there. And I really just lived that life. And um, so I was probably, probably pretty lucky to get a job at all. And my first job was uh, was with Rio Tinto as a graduate, and I just it, I, it's just one of those fortunate moments of landing into something that just suits you. So my jo very first job, I was operating these ships, and they they cost um, they cost twenty thousand US dollars per day, and I cost the company thirty thousand Aussie dollars per year. So. It didn't take me very long to work out if I save a day of that ship by doing something smart, I've saved my annual salaries. So eventually they're going to notice me if I can keep doing stuff like this. And yeah. so I guess that that was just a great start, place to start. And then I think probably the next watershed moment I want to talk about, I mean, I'd spent three years in Hong Kong and, and that was fantastic from uh, expanding my mind and my awareness perspective. I love that opportunity. That was when I was sort of 24 to 27. That's when I met Lucy. She's English at the end of my time in in um, Hong Kong. But my next really watershed was probably working for what was then Camelco, uh, but the aluminium division of Rio Tinto. And there was a young guy there that sort of was trying to develop this to change our thinking from operating just on the margin of the products we sold, but the margin that they make per day, because we had a constrained facility that historically we just sort of sold the highest margin products, but some of those were really slow to produce. And that meant that we were then pushing product into much, much uh, poorer return products. And he basically said, no, we've got to look at this total picture and we've got to assess margin per day. And he drove all that through. And I think I arrived just as he was sort of trying to champion that through the business. And I leapt on it. I thought this is just awesome. And so I think that period really helped me from a, how do I negotiate to get people to do stuff like pick up these products that are much better for us from a throughput perspective and get them to buy the products off us that, we can produce much more quickly and incentivize them to do it. So they win, I win, and I get more through my total facility. And I think that was a really watershed role. And I love that Australian, New Zealand uh, uh, manager sales role in in, uh, in Camelco. And I think that really probably set up my negotiating and uh, business improvement career, the, the the lessons I learned probably in yeah, six or seven years in in that role. And that was awesome. Do you want, can you remember... Any particular day where you just achieved something out of the ballpark that you just because you had the skills? Oh, um, if we go to um, when I was chief negotiator for iron ore, so you know, all of these skills they build up over your career, don't you? You get more confidence, and as yeah. I said, I probably wouldn't have taken on that chief negotiator role. Um, for large parts of my career just because of the, I guess, the pressure and I didn't want to put myself through that thinking I might not be able to cope, cope with it, I guess, for different stages. 
And but when it came, it it was just perfect timing. And yeah, we we'd been through. Um, we knew one of our products we were negotiating quarterly, but we knew it was probably going to evolve onto more index linked sort of pricing. And we had some strategies in mind that we wanted to pull off if that transition happened. And I think eventually it took 18 hours worth of negotiation with our um, the lead counterpart on the Chinese side. Like I, I'd actually haven't had to cancel off a trip to Beijing and I just sent Ashley, who was my fantastic offsider in that negotiation. I just said, I've got to stay here for this last day and just keep going. We've got momentum. You go to Beijing and handle those discussions and here's what you got. If you can do this there, then it'll just solidify the wall of what we're trying to achieve. And we got that negotiation done eventually. And and I just remember this huge hug between me and my counterpart. Um, you know, we had, we had enormous respect for each other, but we were protecting each other's interests and like each, sorry, our respective company's interests, you know, and just like, it's a, to me, it's a real reflection of when you go something, go through something really tough, you know, even as adversaries, you end up creating enormously strong and valuable bonds and, um, yeah, I think that I guess that you know, that particular um, negotiation, just all the perseverance we had to keep, you know, doing, and I guess you apply things like I learned that I really respected um, from one of my negotiation coaches along the lines of, um, you know, protecting your, your strong arguments. So, you know, the expression is, you know, don't don't let a weak argument um, dilute your strong arguments. So you. You know, I guess that situation, you just got to keep repeating your strong arguments over and over again and slightly um, redirecting them, making sure you understand what the other side values and how do you use your arguments to, to I guess, address what they're valuing. But don't go down the rabbit hole of allowing yourself to drift into weak arguments because ultimately then you know, they're going to be able to push you off your position. And, yeah, lots of little tactics like that that I think probably helped through those really big, long, you know, hard negotiations. But I think more than anything, just that, the willingness to stick to your position, you know, know that it's got some substance, persevere, um, and eventually find a way through. Um, yeah, I, I always think they're really valuable, and they, and no doubt those experiences helped me, you know, when I was in the ditch and needed some help. Your um, your book doesn't cover this in, in this detail, so that's what I love about talking to someone like like you in an interview like this. You start to find where did where did that strength where did that ability come from? And you're starting to go, you're starting to go there. Um, so you, you touched on a couple of things there that I, I, I want to explore a little bit. And, they, and you know, people are going to read the book, so let's just explore you a little bit more and find out how the hell did this bloke called Mark Berridge get through this horrific accident? And I think we're getting there with, with um, the life that you set up before then. Um, so you said. You said your negotiations um, in that iron ore job. Uh, you had an you had an 18-hour slog with your counterpart from China, the Chinese arm of the of the um, of the company you were you were dealing with. Yeah. And you sent your counterpart, your, your team member Ashley, to Beijing. Um, so you obviously have a relationship with Ashley. Is that a man or a woman? Oh, uh, that's a that's a man. So yeah, I had uh, um, some brilliant team members through. Um, through that time in in uh, Singapore, we had like I guess probably a team of six typically. But so in my three years, probably ten ten people that went through that team in total, and and all of them made enormous contribute contributions to to what we achieved in those negotiations. Whether it be the extensive preparation that we did, running the scenarios that 
um, that I wanted to to run. Um, I guess you know, one that really comes to mind has been a really great day that I loved is uh, we had um, our, Shanghai, uh, our Shanghai office, or in general, our customer service team out of China saying, you know, you've got to follow this um, this change in pricing mechanism that uh, Fortescue's done. So FMG, one of the other big mining companies, you know, the customers aren't going to keep taking our product if we do this. So I said, well, let's just run through the maths. And I showed them that, you know, if we did what they wanted us to do, we were going to lose, well, we would have lost actually with hindsight about a billion dollars over a couple of years. So big, big money. And I just remember Brett, who was leading the uh, Shanghai office at that point in time, just was so awesome at going, yep, now that you've put them up there, I fully get this math. I fully get why we're doing what we're doing. We're not going to yeah. follow that method. The, um, you know, losing these customers, 15 million tons of customers, which is a lot of lot of ore. You know, we can actually make more money if you if we lose them doing it this way. So why would we change a whole pricing mechanism that um, that the customers are pushing for? Uh, when we could actually do better by not changing that mechanism and and it just yeah I guess all that teamwork that came from within my team preparing for discussions like that making sure I had the right strong arguments that I could just present well whether it be an internal discussion or an external discussion that um, created enormous value for the company that that made yeah we come back to what marks makes Mark very tick geez I would have liked to commission and wasn't paid on commission for the money I earned but it was about pride pride in the performance how do I What's the best way through this? How do I, um, how do I problem solve? I guess the mind, you know, the mind is a predictive machine, and that was both, you know, beneficial for me and a hindrance at times, I suppose, in the, you know, recovery from my, uh, my injury, because at times, obviously, that predictive takes you down, you know, bad loops, and you've got to find a way to break out of those. But, you know, how do we, um, I guess, yeah, utilize that? That was probably a central, very, very central part of who I was and helped me tackle my problem I'm, I'm, no, I'm sorry i just say at a very high level the book's called a fraction stronger in part because there are my experiences in that book and other people's experiences that will make you feel a fraction stronger but fundamentally it's because i believe people are a fraction stronger than they realize i think it's all of these experiences they've had all their life like i did that have built up that help them achieve stuff that they don't think they can achieve and i actually think people are doing that all the time they just don't appreciate how much they're a, accumulating experience, or B, getting through things that they might otherwise have shirked, but for the experience they have. Yes, I think you're on the money there. So uh, we, we will move on to to what the book's about, but I, I, I think it's obvious in your former life that you were a, a leader. You you trained your team in different scenarios. The, those scenarios um, showed potential good outcomes and potential bad outcomes. But what it also did, um, and when you talked about Ashley in particular, you know, you're in this massive um, negotiation for a massive deal for your company, your reputation's on the line, but you trusted your team member to go and deliver. Oh, I had, so I had total, tr total trust with the people. You couldn't, I mean, you know, we were dealing with highly sensitive information, highly sensitive um, and... I guess, you know, very impactful um, results. Yeah, we had nothing but complete trust for the people that, that I work with. And I think that's, I've been fortunate all the way through my career. I've had, you know, very little instances where I haven't felt that sense of trust with colleagues. Um, you know, perhaps it's, perhaps I've had some influence on that because, 
um, of the way I come across and, and I've sought that, you know, I'd like to think I had some influence on them, but I think in general, you know, most people are of that, that cloth anyway. And, uh, and I was very fortunate. I just always had great people around me and trusted them. And yeah, I mean, we, we would, you know, we'd be, be building up to stuff like that as well. You'd always be looking for what's the negotiations that you, um, you know, people through different levels in your organization can handle, how do you set them up for success so they handle those well well, and then they feel better about the next negotiations? But, you know, at that point in time, Ashley could have done my role, really. Um, you know, we were we were completely um, synchronous in our thinking and our performance, I think. Um, and same for Ben and same for Zion, that were also uh, people um, that did enormous support for me through different negotiations. I think um, you're just, uh, you've been very humble about saying you've never you've never really worked with anyone that you didn't trust, and I think the reason why you never really worked for anyone with anyone that you didn't trust is because you're you set up the environment. Yeah. Yeah. You're. You're. It's just natural. Like the first day I met you, uh, it came through who you are. Like this, you're a good guy, good person, genuine, uh, and I think that's that's just come through in that story you've just told about your whole team. One one question I always ask in this um, in this Courage to Lead interview series: What was um, what was Mark Berridge's first experience, first encounter with true leadership? And it doesn't have to be today. It might it might have been earlier in your life. You mentioned you had a pretty good mentor in the negotiation thing field. Um, what's what's a good story there, Mark? Oh, I probably had a lot of good negotiation mentors of different different ilk so i'm very very fortunate the one i absolutely love was very early in my rio tinto career so i you know probably still a graduate maybe the first two years if not the third year because i went off to hong kong after three years so certainly in, it's in perth in the first three years and i guess because i'm quite social i you know i got to know the receptionist on front desk a bit she was an absolutely lovely uh, older lady um, she was always so friendly. Anyway, in restructure, whatever, Rio made her redundant. And I remember the general manager who did the speech for her farewell. And there was, you know, because she was very popular. And I think it was deeply felt by many people, including me as a graduate, you know, that she had been forced out in this, you know, cost-cutting exercise. We don't really like cost-cutting exercise when they're going around us. But that general manager, John Parker, just uh, made an absolutely amazing speech for this lovely lady, and which I loved. But also I had the chance to speak to him straight afterwards. And he said, well, we do farewell speeches for the person that's leaving, but we also do them for the people that are staying. And those words were just so powerful to me to realise what true leadership does for the culture of a place and for the way feel, people feel about being valued because ultimately we work for, as I said before, we work for not the commission but for the, the pride we feel and what we've done for the organisation, whether we've given it all, our all in that particular problem that we needed to, to navigate, that crisis we needed to manage, those um, that restructure that was uncomfortable that we had to find a way to lead our way through. You know, we're we're doing it for that pride in performance. And I think nothing captures that as brilliant for me as John Parker's expression to me that day. And I just feel privileged that I was just, a, you know, nothing but a, you know, very green graduate. And he just took the time to um, to talk to me at the end of that particular presentation and make that brilliant comment. Wow. 
Thank you for sharing that. I don't think I'll ever forget the simpleness of that story. That's pretty good, Mark. Thank you. Mm. All right. So I think I think you've given us a pretty good picture of um, of what life was like for Mark Berridge and 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 like not many of us would ever dream of being the chief negotiator for a company such as Rio Tinto in their international arm for their iron ore business because iron ore is a is probably Australia's one of its major imports, exports. Um, so you had some serious skills. So then you're you're in the you're in the hospital, um, and, and and the way your promo says it, life changed. <clears throat> so yeah, it so, certainly did. <laughs> so um, do you just want to talk us through what what that change was like? And when you realise that life is probably not there anymore. Oh, is there a perfect answer to that last part of the question? I mean, you know, it was an, at the moment, as I said, you know, I was just so stupid, I didn't actually realise how bad it was. It was only once we heard the the news about the spinal cord damage and this 50, more than 50% compression in your spinal cord in in the hospital did I start to appreciate how bad it was and it took me a number of hours to get myself head around that and and find a way to say yes i am up to this challenge i will give it my best shot there are other people that have had it worse and they've done amazing things you can do this and then you go through a five-hour operation you get out of that and you can't move at all and you do hang on when i was making deals with myself yesterday yeah. about giving this my best shot, I wasn't realising that I wouldn't be able to push myself up the bed a centimetre. So yeah. I guess you have all these these waves of the being up and down of, you know, it is really going to be tough. Life is never going to be the same. And I think the biggest ones for me was just that constant feeling of the assault on my identity. You know, I, life was busy. You know, we had three kids. They all had lots of sporting you know, commitments. You know, most weekends we'd be up to five different sporting commitments across the three kids you know Lucy and I were just you know both working full-time both living busy lives life was only really just holding together and all of a sudden I'm making that worse I'm not part of helping it I think that was probably the the part of my identity I was really struggling with the most and it did drive me it was you know it's a negative thought and sometimes those negative thoughts can have a positive application, which mostly I did. You know, you can also loop loop in them in, in a negative way, and I had to be careful of that. But I really probably used that sense of I don't want to be useless, I don't want to be a burden on my family, you know, which were overblown. And, of course, people, you know, um, are in much tougher positions than me and don't end up being like those things. But that's the mind tricks my mind was playing at that point in time. Just don't be these things. Find a way just to do the smallest things you can you can do to keep self moving forward rather than fall back. And I think at the very start, yeah, when it was so tough, that was the biggest thing was just the assault on the identity, but almost solving that problem by going, well, just do the little things you can do. You can't can't solve that problem today, but if you don't have a setback, if you wiggle, you find a way to strain every muscle and attempt to wiggle your toes. If you find a way to breathe deeply and not get a lung infection, then you're more hope of finding that solution in the, the future. You don't need to don't need to solve that problem today. What you need right now is to not give up, to not um, not go backwards. Um, and yeah, just to show your strength by persevering. All right. So you just kind of gave a few little hints there. 
small, small steps, small achievements like wiggling your toe, breathing without without a lung infection. Um, so what um, what in those first few weeks, kind of, um, and it, it might be in the book, it might not be in the book. Um, what real, what, what what was the kind of turning moment where you were you were despaired, but then all of a sudden you weren't despaired? Well, it was definitely an up and down experience. I mean, um, you know, it had like in the book I'll share. Um, there are plenty, of, you know, I guess stories where I was really low on. Um, self-belief like on that first Friday and then I had a few visits that got me up and down but even at the even at a book level right you keep them really high level what I don't say is just how horrible I was feeling on Saturday afternoon because uh, my you know it was really a low point um, in the middle of that sort of three I had three visits that really were important to to restock my my belief Friday Saturday Sunday and they definitely all helped but you know, even within those improvements in belief through that period, you know, I had really horrible low points. Like the Saturday afternoon, I get sent off for an X-ray. I get lost in some part of the hospital for what felt like two hours. I'm in extraordinary pain. I later find out that my family's come to the hospital, tried to find me, can't find me, can't locate me, uh, and have got another appointment to go, and and they've gone, and I'm just feeling so lonely and so horrible when. Brian, who's the the middle of these three stories of people just popping up in my room, you know, uh, turns up and gives me some belief. And my first thoughts were, I'm so anti the world and anti how I feel right now. I don't want to be seeing anyone. Um, And I don't know you that well. And yet he, you know, by investing that kindness and sharing his story, um, turned me around. So these were happening all the time because it was so tough. It was so low. There was just constant sort of, moments of me feeling um you know terrible and then you know, and then something helping me just to persevere a bit longer finding another way all these angels that that turned up at the right moments when i needed them and sometimes i had to be my own angel and just saying well the only way you can break out of this spark is to do the little things you can do and going back to those little steps or whatever it might be or think about someone that's had it tougher and what they've done and you know use um use that to distance yourself from your current feelings and just give yourself some you know something to focus on that you can control yeah and i think um i mean you've been there so you've, you've experienced it um what, what, what i love when i read your book um and i gave your book to my mum my mum had a, a a leg amputated in her late 80s um and had to learn how to work wear, wear, wear a prosthetic mm. leg and and she toughs it out amazingly um but so she she loved your book but what what i learned through that process is what you just talked about um when you're when you've had a massive surgery and a massive setback in your life you're scared you're scared beyond being scared <laughs> um and being uh wheeled around those hospitals by wards people that do that every day sometimes they're nice sometimes they're not sometimes they get lost um it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to keep your, to Look, keep the, your spirits up. The, the, book is, the book is focused on all the positive experiences because there are so many that help me. Um, but, yeah, definitely the um, the hospital was a bit of a lost and found department at different stages, and that could easily break someone. And I'm just fortunate that people turned up at the right moments that it didn't break me, but there were moments where, it, yeah, it was closer, unfortunately, and, uh, 
you know, the, the, like the X-ray experience, was, it, it wasn't really anyone's fault. It's just that that expected me to have to do that standing X-ray, which I was really, really scared about on the Friday. So I was booked into the clinic that was only open on Fridays, but then the wardies have taken me down because I'm going there on Saturday, taking me to the only X-ray facility within the hospital that's open on a Saturday. I get checked in there, but for whatever reason, don't get checked in properly where my booking, which was made for another clinic within the hospital, gets transferred over to this clinic. So if someone actually does anything with me, I just get left lying there and, you know, just feeling, you know, miserable and unloved. And, you know, you, yeah, you, you know, you, I guess when you're miserable in yourself or trying to combat not being miserable in yourself constantly, you know, situations like that where you sort of do feel even more unloved makes it harder. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Think, anyway, yeah. so I guess that would be it. And, yeah, and certainly I know, you know, well, I don't know what your mum's been through, but I've got some appreciation of it having, you know, spent the six weeks in, in the um, geriatric and rehab unit where the majority of my bed partners were um, amputees. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, like, your book's uh, divided into three parts, lanterns, angels and demons. Um, and that's that's recovery from a major in, major injury, isn't it, really, that? all those three entities happen in 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 your own head um, when you're trying to recover from that do you want to talk about because um, you kind of hinted at it um, at the opening part of it when your family walks in um, like you, the, the horror that your wife Lucy felt um, and the probably the lack of awareness you had and I think you talked about um, your your mates on the side of the road. Uh, taking photos of you, that kind of stuff. Mm. People don't know what to say or do uh, when someone's seriously injured or or gets some really bad news. So what was it about um, Ryan that he made you lift your spirits? Yeah, so I had the the three visits over three days. I had the cousin-in-law from Perth come in on the Friday, which was really important. He could sort of restock my belief a bit. Um, He was a physio. Then Brian came in on the sad day and then another story on the Sunday. And Brian had been, you know, struck by a lorry left on the side of the road, unconscious, found by an off-duty policeman. Um, and eventually it took a while, but they found out he had six fractures to his spine and so he took him a long way back. So I guess there was a, you know, he touched me, I guess, on so many levels by doing that, just coming in and sharing the story. And, and again, it probably comes back to a negotiator trick. I was really happy mentally to try and find the areas of common ground between his story and then the story that I heard on the Sunday and mine I didn't I didn't look for the differences I didn't pull them apart and say well you know you don't have, realize how hard my journey is because uh, you you know you didn't have a spinal cord injury whereas I do you know you just had the six fractures of your spine um, Look, everyone's journey is unique anyway, right? Who knows what it was? And I certainly didn't actually understand how hard my journey was going to be at that stage. I was just trying to find belief. And in order to build and believe and sustain belief, it was important for me to look at the similarities in their stories to mine and build off them rather than pick for any differences. And I think, again, that's a really powerfully powerful mental um, trick's the wrong word, but just an experience I have from all that time of negotiation. You know, so I've, a long time ago, I wrote an article about it called Mind the Gap. But but you know, another way to say it's just how do you look the, make the gap look smaller between two parties? How do you use language that's consistent? How do you um, find the things, make sure you're reinforcing the things you agree on um, to build momentum? 
and I guess effectively I did that out of those sort of visits and and I think that did help me all the way through the journey is finding those areas of commonality and building off them and trying to wherever I could find ways to keep some limited momentum into my you know my journey going forward. It's pretty strong Mark um, and 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 you know, who knows why it's just chance that the accident happened but but you, you, you said it at the start of the interview, often in our lives, um, the skills we have built up through our lives help us with the challenges we have today. So you just accounted, um, accounted you know, a negotiator trick, you call it, mind mm. the gap, make the gap look smaller, um, find the similarities. It's pretty, that's pretty strong stuff. And Eleanor, I would like to say that the other thing Brian did, he, he left me a, a, copy, a copy of James Kerr's legacy, and I'm sorry, oh, James yeah. Kerr, as good as it is, I didn't get all the way through it. Um, but he had written an absolutely so powerful inscription in the front cover. And of course, I was so um, beat up at that stage, I couldn't actually open the book and hold it and do anything. So it was probably only three or four weeks later that that I found that as well. So talk about the gift that keeps on giving. You know, not only did he provide inspiration to me on that day, but um, he pumped my tyres up a little bit in that inscription, which I found out you know, that three or four weeks later about, you know, he, him feeling that I had a very strong foundation and ultimately when you're trying to build something, you know, strong and tough, you need a really strong foundation and uh, that I should um, really, you know, focus on that foundation and build off it. And it's interesting because they're sort of the, excuse me, I'm a little bit gassy here, so the things that I um, definitely was doing but uh, um, just didn't, um, you know, probably didn't appreciate it and then he's... Um, his words really helped me reinforce that, yeah, that's working, keep doing it. So how did you know, um, I mean, that's and it's sometimes out of left field, like an inscription like that has a, life, a life-changing, life-building uh, ability on us. I, I pick up that Brian is not part of your normal circle, but he, he just chose to come and visit you. Um, so he was the cross-country coach and... Uh, AFL coach of my um, eldest boy Luke um, at at the boys school and he was always chatty so we sort of you know we'd chat quite often at when I turned up to to cheer at, at either of those functions but um, but I didn't know him well if you like like in a, probably one of those situations where embarrassing you sort of know someone but you don't feel like you know very much about them and you're always worried you might get their name wrong at the next time you catch up with them sort of that sort of level of bond sorry that's a bit embarrassing Brian you've been amazing sorry <laughs> but um but you know that level of knowledge so in some ways that was part of why I'm on that Saturday afternoon when he turns up I'm thinking I don't know you that well and I just don't want to see anyone at the moment and he you know just by pushing through that just did amazing things and of course then he was the inscription and then he came back again and was central to me having belief that maybe someone had listened to my story by asking me to speak to the AFL boys a couple of mm-hmm. couple of years later and yes. got me going and stuff like that. So he just kept popping back up and does so today. Like he'll continue to, to drop me notes and he's probably bought as many books as anyone and keeps giving them to people because he, he um, you know, really values the story in it, I guess, because more than anyone, he's lived that experience. I mean, yeah, you know, for him, I think it was it took him eight years to – to jog again after his own um, six fractures to his vertebrae. You know, he can jog really well again now and um, he's in, you know, I'm sure he copes with a fair bit of pain all the time. He doesn't let on about it, but in general is in a pretty, you know, good state of health. 
um, that you know someone who was a you know higher level athlete than me, you know, very high level um, rowing, surf boat rowing, which is you know I just got tremendous respect for people that do that. That's a very um, you know tough and skillful thing to do, right? Yeah. And um, so yeah, very very talented at that, and uh, you know other other you know, I guess sporting skills and. Um, you know, had all that taken away from him, same as me. You know, like you know, that moment, and he had very young children when he got injured. Um, you know, I think uh, his oldest boy might have been three when his accident happened. You know, I get, I probably feel fortunate that my children are a bit older, um, just from that, because as I said, you you feel this assault on like your identity. You know, if I had been like younger, my kids being younger, you know, that whole financial pressures. Uh, assault on your identity part would have made it even harder. I think at the very start, you know, I, I I had income protection insurance, but I had no idea that it was going to kick in or be valuable. But I didn't really even care at that stage. It was just, um, you know, a little bit selfish in terms of I'll throw anything I need to at this in terms of my, you know, my the wealth I've been able to accumulate in my life so far and my energy to to get myself back towards physical health as opposed to if I had been younger and less of a financially comfortable position and um, I think it would have been so much more tra mentally traumatic and I, I guess I feel grateful for that. Very good Mark. Um, I, th the, I don't know whether you, you're aware of this, um, the Courage to Lead series seeks out people, leaders who empower others to create um, in supportive and inclusive environments. So you've just, um, you're doing that just by talking about what you're talking about but um, you gave a really good example of Brian it was there. Sometimes that little bit of support, when you least expect it, can make all the difference. Oh, just amazing. And, you know, I guess that, again, come back to the, you know, the good fortune of my situation, you know, unlucky moment that's led to so many lucky things. Um, you know, one of which is now, you know, I get to support Griffith University and its efforts to create more inclusive futures for those with a disability. And I guess very central part of that, which I'm don't really know how how to tackle well, but how do we change society's attitudes to um, you know disability? A, I think you know people don't appreciate quite how many um, people are touched by disability in their community, and one in five are yeah. disabled. But of course, that means that many many more are um, impacted by you know, being a, a support carer or some yeah. other yeah. form yeah. of you know. Yeah. And you know what impact is that having on our economy? Um, not to mention the impact it has on those individuals and how much better would society be if we find a way to change our attitudes, change our systems, change our um, access that makes for a much more inclusive future. And there's certainly some companies that are very keen to partner, I think, with, with Griffiths to do that. And the people they've got both in research and trying to champion partnerships are amazing. And, you know, how humbling that they would reach out to me and think that some way I can make some tiny impact to that. That's just wow. awesome. So yeah, yeah, you're a special person, Mark, and um, uh, that's that's a gift to be able to <clears throat> to shine a light on people with disability. Like in my former life as a police commander, I had the role. Each superintendent had um, had a sponsorship, so my sponsorship was vulnerable communities, which was homelessness. Um, homelessness, elder abuse, and disabilities. And that in that, that figure of one in five was still in my head. But it's, mm. it's quite confronting that it's one, one person in five is disabled in our community. 
but they're not. That doesn't mean they can't think straight and and contribute. So it's pretty pretty special. Yeah, and, um, and I guess you know we have so many stereotypes, right? You know, sort of like I'm a spinal cord injury. Um, you know, I don't even know what the right word is. Patient. I'm not. I'm not a victim. I, I need to develop a word. But you know, recovering from a spinal cord injury. Um, but relatively high functioning, you know, I think, but statistically they say I'm 29% impaired, you know, my functional walking capability is 50% of what it used to be, but, you know, the average person wouldn't even realise that I've got some level of impairment, and that is true of two-thirds of the people that have a spinal cord injury. So what, you know, the the average person would um, picture when you mention spinal cord injury is only one-third of that community. And, you know, um, and that's true across all of our um, you know, disabled um, situations. And um, and I guess, you know, as I said, onto the ripples of the carers that look after them, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've got systems that are very prescriptive. And not that I'm pushing for a disabled car park, but, you know, they are basically about people that can't walk any reasonable amount of distance. Well, you know, there's plenty of people that, that might need that help that, don't fit that criteria and how do we get a little bit more sensible and go well there should be you know maybe there's different criteria in some situations we need a really tight criteria in other situations we need to have uh you know a a more fair criteria because certainly you know i'm not you know again i'm not too bad but you know you start walking over a k and you know it's tucking you out a fair bit um and there'd be plenty of people that would be in a worse boat than me and then you'll fix um I'm conscious of time a little bit, but you know, it, it's the simple things, and you just said a kilometre could really, really um, challenge you. Like walking in a major hospital in any major Australian city, you could walk a kilometre easy. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> walking walking upstairs, walking with a load, they're the things that sort of are just a bit harder for me, and they're totally, you know, and, um, well, you know, come back to those lowest moments, like one of the worst ones for me was, December 2019, we went on a family holiday back to, or to US and then to UK because my life single had been booked before my um, injury. So I was just determined not to let the family down to find a way to get through it. And I remember just the transit in LAX on the way through. Um, I was in so much pain after, you know, 14 hour flight from Brisbane to LAX and then walking around that airport, standing in queues. You know, it was really literally one of the the few times I've really felt like I just can't keep doing this for, I just can't keep doing it. And, you know, it's a pretty terrible moment, obviously, and, you know, not something I've ever communicated to my family who fortunately don't listen to my podcasts. Um, But, you know, (laughs) there's tough moments, right? There's tough moments because life is just hard. But on the bright side, you know, you just got to turn that back and go, well, actually, that's a pretty good problem to have. Yes, it was uncomfortable at the moment, but, you know, you're still independent. You still got their capability of doing it, even if you didn't like it in the moment. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Um, I, um, there's probably two things I want to go to because uh, you know we really encourage people to to read the book. That's and that's you know the prime probably the primary reason of of our podcast today. But there's um, two points in the book that you I think you you found a doctor that found uh, possibilities, I suppose, or hope in helping you recover better than other doctors thought? Is that is that my memory of the book? Uh, so I'd probably think you're thinking about Physio Leanne, perhaps, who just helped me um, re, recalibrate. So probably the very first physio in Royal Brisbane was really good. And then um, Leanne, who is the physio that basically 
just arrived at the right moment for me at, at that point I'd halfway through my PA hospital. So I had six weeks there. So halfway through that three weeks, that's the second my two hospitals. Um, I just was pretty much over it. I'd thrown everything I could at it. I didn't seem to be making any progress. I really was confused as to why my body just wasn't reacting, if you like. And and she described my injury in a different way. So I, I probably was at point starting to accept I had a you know long-term spinal cord injury. I wasn't going to make the improvements that I'd originally inspired to. And she, she changed it up and she said, you got to think about your, your car as being, your, your body as being a car that's had a massive in accident and all its electrical wiring has been shaken loose. And we've just got to find a way to put it back together. It, it's there somewhere. It may not work as well as it did pre the injury, but it's got, there is stuff there and we've got to want, find a way to reconnect it. And she, you know, she did some pretty invasive things that felt a bit awkward at the time, you know, I'm white, flabby, exposed with my t-shirt off sweating um but i pushed myself into that discomfort because she was just making such a difference and i had five or so sessions with her and they were awesome so i think that's probably the 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 example you're thinking of which is pretty amazing um yeah <laughs> had some other situations where you know not so positive and doctors are saying you know you, you've reached the end of your improvement you're never going to improve again you're flogging a dead horse stop trying to push yourself so hard and i guess i couldn't really accept those sort of ideas um, so you have a bit of a mixed bag and you've got to digest your way through that, but that's life, isn't it? There's always different viewpoints, different opinions. And, and I really use that to my advantage. I think most of the way through and say, well, people only give me feedback based on their own experience and they don't have the whole range of experiences that are possible out there. I'm going to be one of those other different experiences and, and, you know, find a way to, to be on that edge. I've got to be okay if they're right. And my situation ends up in, in the zone they think it will be. But if there's a, a way to make it better, I'm going to shoot for that. Why wouldn't I? I'll, I'll, I'll live. I will sleep better um, with myself for the rest of my life if I've given this my absolute best shot. So you kind of, um, uh, how I would summarise that is other people have got their stories from their own lived experience, but you're writing your own story with endless possibilities. I definitely took that attitude from first day, like, because I said, you know, every uh, when you're pushing for s sort of some clarity, when you're so scared on that first day, you know, that flight, um, fight, flight, or freeze sort of idea, and you're just pushing for some level of a certainty, and there's no certainty to be given. And they kept saying, you know, every spinal cord injury is unique. And I think the moment I sort of let go of certainty and just go, oh, good. Well, if every spinal cord injury is unique, then every recovery can be unique. I think that was one of the most powerful moments. So I'm not quite sure how or why my mind did that, but I'm so grateful it did. That's um, pretty strong in that uh, Leanne's line about um, the wirings there. You just gotta, just gotta make it, make it work. Um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty on the money there, Mark. I had so many but, awesome people do stuff like that. It's so fortunate, and again, you know, part of the driver of why we're doing this year. Yeah. Um, last, last bit. My last memory of the book, and then we'll just talk. We'll talk. We'll, we'll start to wrap it up. It, my memory is, I think it was a sporting event. You were really struggling to walk, but you practised and practised so you could walk and go to a sporting event. I think it was might have been one of your children. You could walk to the Oval. Was, was, am I right around that? Oh, uh, be. I guess there'd be a lot of different layers of that. So um, was it about two and a half, two weeks, three weeks post the accident? I, my, it was Luke, my oldest boy's final game of footy for... Um, his school where that Brian is the coach and I 
worked really hard. I actually negotiated pretty hard. I prepared hard for a negotiation to be allowed out of hospital for a couple of hours to be able to go to that. And um, even though I felt like absolute death out there, I just wanted to be vis visible. And more than that, I just wanted to stand up. I think as much as anything, I stood up and held onto that rail for about five minutes on my legs just to prove to myself I could do it and I could push through something uncomfortable. Um, so that was definitely yeah, that was definitely a really big one. I paid the price for that. I think I there was a few different things that happened, but I ended up pretty much spending the next two days um, on my side in bed in the fetal position because pain just got so bad. Um, and, you know, but, you know, I'm so grateful I, I did that. And I guess the other one I'd say is that, you know, I just wanted to go back to that identity of helping out my children, being involved in their lives. So, you know, yeah, I used to run the boundary at their AFL games, but I couldn't do that anymore because I couldn't run, but I could do other things. So how do I find a way to, you know, once I got onto crutches, be involved in other roles I could do for those teams so that I could still contribute even if I couldn't contribute in the way I used to. So, yeah, that would be the two ways I'd link it back to that example. Pretty amazing, Mark. Um, I think um, it's obvious to anyone listening to this podcast today um, that the absolute fear you must have had and probably still have um, uh, at certain times, um, but um, beyond that fear is your courage your courage to just keep on having a go it's just it's an amazing story mark um and you can tell because you have gone i think today a little bit deeper than the book um you can tell how much it hurt uh and, and how much doubt was there but how strong you are um uh with with some of the people around you like the the different people in the hospital do you want to talk a little bit about and, and we'll, we'll start to wrap it up do you want to talk about yeah, you didn't want to let your kids down um, and, and your family down because you went on these holidays that nearly killed you and, and stuff like that. Do you want to talk about what they gave you? Oh, when I'll, I'll bring it back to that comment I made. You know, when you're that low at the start and it feels like an assault on your identity, I really, really um, lent into the things that I valued. I call them embers, the 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 little sparks of hope inside you that that really do connect to the things you value most in your life. And and that really came down to, you know, being around to and and being able to be involved in my children's life. I mean, that I think I've always had a strong sense of wanting to have wonderful, you know, have children and be able to have a positive contribution in their life and it comes back to your sort of comments around leader. I mean, what do you, as a leader at work, what did you value the most? I valued the, um, having, seeing the people that I had some level of influence on, even though it's only small, go on and do amazing things and have good satisfying lives and, and just be great people. That's all I ever wanted of my life in terms of my children, I think is. And so you really use that as a driver of how do I, find a way to get back and participate in that as much as possible. And it was a very, very strong driver. So what did they give me? Um, they gave me the reason, uh, and so did Lucy, obviously, to to just find a way to say to myself, I don't like where I am. There's going to be a better place. Drive yourself to that better place. There's going to be lots of good things on the end of these tough moments if you get through these tough moments to get to that better place. And I think that was the um, you know, my children were the the central thing in that. Wonderful, wonderful, Mark. 
So I think we're pretty well at the end end of um, end of the podcast. Um, you've written the book. Um, I'll ask you two questions about the book. What did you learn about yourself in writing the book? And and number two, what um, you know, like you're talking to prospective readers out there today. What do you hope someone reading your book takes away from your book? Yeah, so uh, flip an answer to the first one to start with. I, I, you know, I appreciated I was a better writer than I imagined. I guess I, you know, used to write a little bit at school and stuff, but I didn't hadn't that'd been relatively suppressed. It helped my roles in work, but it wasn't central to them. So I definitely, you know, found that I was a better writer. But the the deeper answer is, um, I guess I found how much it really hurt. Like. I, about 15 months after the accidents, when I sort of started the journey that moved towards me speaking and writing about it by putting something out public for the first time, I watched the video of me trying to walk on day 10 over and over and over again till I could watch it without crying because the previous attempts I'd made, I just cried and cried and cried. And um, and then I opened up the diary of the notes I'd made through the first six weeks of hospital and I was in fear of opening that note, those notes and reliving it. So... I guess I probably felt like I was through all that stuff and people said, oh, you know, when you write the book, it'll be cathartic. I'm going, oh, I've already been through it. I, you know, did it a year, you know, was it six months before? I've sort of found a way through that now. And I guess more than anything, the book made me appreciate, you know, just how valuable as a cathartic process that writing it was and and really made me appreciate how much it had hurt me. And, you know, every, and again, everyone's unique, right? Maybe I'm too sensitive and it hurt me too much, but it certainly shows, um, you know, just how deep those feelings were for me and both in a good and bad way. Like they, if they weren't so deep, I don't know that I would have got the same outcomes. I'd come back to that previous answer about the kids. You know, I, I, yeah. I think that was important, important to me just as part of my fabric of a character and we're, we're all our own person, right? Be your own person. But to me, those things were the fabric of me and really helped. Um, so what well, do I hope you, people get from the book? Sorry. If I can give you some feedback, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, it's, I think it's pretty important. Like I've read your book, um, and and you give your all. You give you you give you you give the reader you in that book about how much it hurt, how brave you were, how courageous you were, um, and how you looked to write your own story. So I, I really congratulate you on on a fantastic read. Oh, thank <laughs> so, you. Thank um, you. Um, so what? Um, I, I, and I'm very apologise that I did interrupt you. What do you hope? for a reader to take away from the book? So we've already touched on earlier, and I do think that um, I want the readers to self-reflect as they read the book and feel that they're they're stronger than they um, than they thought they were. I would definitely, in the same way as I channeled when I was feeling lost and, and empty, thought about the achievements of other people and realised that they're not alone in any challenges, that people getting through challenges all the time. It's not a line in the book. I didn't think of it in time, but... You know, to me, very central to to the book is life is imperfect, but people achieve exceptional things from imperfect positions every day. It's happening around us all the time. We just some of it's celebrated, most of it's not. Yeah. It's happening, and um, I guess more than anything, I want people to feel like that if they set their mind to it, they can do almost anything. Yes, you may need to also be prepared to you know fall short. I think there's some real value in in allowing us some slack to maybe not reach an aspirational target because that makes us want to push that aspirational to be okay to push that aspirational target even more 
uh, even higher. And obviously, the higher we can push it, the more likely we are to achieve something amazing. That's pretty true. And if I can just share, I just, um, uh, as you know, these podcasts, they, they get posted every four, 14 days. So that, so that means I've interviewed quite a number of people. Um, so I've got a, got a, a kind of a lot of them waiting in the wings. But I just recently interviewed um, a member for Parliament, a bloke called Alex Greenwich, Greenwich in, um, in New South Wales. He's a, a member, an independent member for Sydney. And he's one of the driving forces behind the Marriage Equality Act. Um, and getting that that across the line, and he he said in the interview, I hate losing, and I lost so many times with the Marriage Equality Act, but when I lost, I lost forward. Mm. Yeah, um, and I think your story shows that you lost every time you had a challenge, you fell forward. Yep, yeah, um, and you know, you I guess you got to be prepared for that failure, right? And you know, but often you learn from that failure. You're actually making progress you can't see in that failure. And I think I definitely felt like that happened to me a lot in my recovery of how do I push it? Uh, yeah, I've fallen short, but I'm actually still moving forward. And, and uh, yeah, no, thank you. It's a great parallel. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, as well as the book, you can there's an audio book out now, so you can go hunt down the audio book. You get to hear me sing, so that might put you off. Uh, <laughs> not for very long, fortunately. Is that in the um, book, isn't the audio book? That's in the audio book, and uh, I know we're, we're we're wrapping up. You got time for the backstory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no. All right. This so all, this can go as long as you want. So when we're um, I wasted a bit of time when I was writing uh, the the start of the Alan uh, Marshall part of the book, which is the intro to the Lantern section, and I'd love that um, I can jump puddles uh, series on TV. And I've got the strongest memory of my mum buying us a cassette with a different song on there about I Can Jump Puddles and us playing it a lot in the car and it being around at that time. And I, I, it was actually one of those songs that when I was not feeling great as a kid, I would actually play in my mind and, and you know, that I can do stuff. And so I played that song a bit in my head in the, in the, in the hospital. And then so when I'm writing the book, I go hunting for the hunting for the the song i can't find the st- song anyway i actually watched two episodes of i can jump puddles off some of youtube or something it's clearly not in the in the um abc series of that it's not in the music for abc that you can buy i wrote to the uh, actor who wrote <laughs> who played alan marshall he was very kind he wrote back and said i don't know your song um yeah. And uh, so basically we can't hunt, the, hunt on the song anywhere. So I guess I figured that if I, a, if I sing it, people will appreciate that that's what was going through my head and, and I used it in a power, try to use it in a powerful way and maybe it'll help them. B, if anyone can solve the problem and find that song for me, yeah. uh, please let me know because I do think it's out there somewhere. I don't believe my mum, as creative as a musician and wonderful as she is, uh, that she helped me sit down at the piano and write it. it is, that is possible, but she doesn't remember it doing that. Um, uh, but uh, so I'm figuring it's out there somewhere. It was on a music cassette once, but I cannot find it. So if anyone ever listens to the audio book and solves that riddle, um, I don't even know what your what your reward is. Uh, <laughs> a lifetime supply of a fraction stronger books, whatever. No, I don't even know whether anyone wants that. I like. I just yeah, I'd love it. So yeah, that's the riddle. It's the power of um, music in our lives. It's the power of um, you're touching on so many things. 
Um, well, I pumped the music when I was in the gym, like, and I just spent all my time in the gym in hospital. It was my outlet. Just go to the gym two and a half, three hours a day. Just go to the gym. I'm moving. I'm, I may not be moving forward fast, but at least I'm. I've got some hope of moving forward if I'm spending my time in here. And yeah, it didn't take very long before I took over the uh, Bluetooth player and started getting some tunes as I was uh, as I was uh, doing the the time in the gym to just try and you know, just have a few happy songs in the background, you know, a bit of Imagine Dragons, Top of the World, whatever you can put on, something yeah. that makes you feel good. But sorry, and we'll just one more one more song stuff while we're there. So my bloody family, I mean, we've we're told how nice they were all through this. When we had the book launch, they decided, they said, oh, we better get a few songs. I, I think I said, like, you're pretty busy organising book launch. I said, you know, um, Luke, my oldest boy, can you, organize um a playlist of songs for us and between him and my wife they started the right and all the kids got involved they decided they were going to get everybody song about a bicycle accident you can possibly <laughs> uh, possibly imagine right you know yeah. i love to ride my bicycle i chumbawamba i get knocked down i get up again yeah. i can't even think of all the good ones they came up with but they had they must have had a hundred songs now cacking themselves with I was on the email list every time or the WhatsApp list, whichever yeah. next song they come up with their flat back of me. And you know, I'm jesting around. They are the those are the things, those are the moments that got me through the toughest times in the first week. The little moments of trivial humor, of connection, of feeling loved and valued. You know, even if you're having the Mickey taken out of you to, to a degree, it it is all about self-worth and those things helped me enormously through hospital and they helped me again on that, you know, you know, what was a pretty stressful week for me of, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, get the book out to the, to the world and, um, yeah, I, sorry, we're going really deep. I'll, I'll share something else really deep. Like the day that I finally pressed submit on the book, you know, I, I wept because you, you're moving from that, that point of something that's really, private and yeah people are starting to learn a little bit more about um but then you know once you press good to print it's going to be out there in the world for good or bad you know i'll get the positive cricket critical reviews at times I'm, i've had so many stories of people's mums loving the book i love that so thank you for sharing that again today and, and all your positivity and i'll get the person that writes you know did not finish crap book <laughs> repetitive you know yeah. but once you put it out there that is the courage, you know, courage to lead. That's the courage to take a position you take. And mm -hmm. I don't think I cried for those reasons. I think I just cried from the, um, you know, I've actually given this my all and I'm so proud of myself. And I think I even probably tried to read a little bit just to pick a hole and pick somewhere I've made a mistake, that perfectionist tendencies of, you know, unhealthiness. But you couldn't find them and I just felt proud and I just go, yep, it's out there now. Let it go. Mm -hmm. Well done. I think that's a really good um, <clears throat> segue to say thank you, Mark Burridge. Um, it's a, uh, to all the listeners out there um, listening to this podcast, I can't recommend A Fraction Stronger by Mark Burridge to you any any uh, any more than where can they get the bookmark? Uh, so it's available in most bookstores, I think, still. Booktopia, Amazon, obviously, markberridge.com.au. You get, get a love letter in the front because I can't help myself because it's pretty special when someone buys your book. You've got to write something that I think might mean something to you if I can find anything out about you that will help me do that. Um, and audiobook is now on pretty much every audiobook platform. Um, yeah, it's it's Google Mark Berridge or Google A Fraction Stronger, and it should come up. Well done, because it, because it is that popular. And I think um, 
One last thing. I can see you've got, uh, we haven't even gone there. I can see on the, over your right shoulder, there's a medal hanging off your book. So you've got a few um, awards, haven't you, for your book as well? Yeah, it's um, it's picked up two awards in the US, a gold medal in one category and one competition and a silver medal in a um, in the Living Now Awards over there, that that pretty big medal. Um, I'm not even sure why I've got it hanging there. I think I just had it to stop the books uh, <laughs> um, lately. You know how they sort of sag out after a while? Yeah. I'd had the, I actually took a photo of it because I this year is my um, a really special year for me. It's a 20-year anniversary of a hockey premiership that I captained here in, in Brisbane with some, some fantastic guys, like an amazing team. And that was the first time that University of Queensland had ever won a um, premiership on a on a turf on a, on a turf hockey pitch, um, and we'd been there and thereabouts for a couple of years. And I think this was my second year as captain, and we had like six years of uh, really really high achievement and pretty special time. So this year was our 20th anniversary, and so we recently had our um, reunion for that. And it was so nice to catch up with all the boys and. Um, as a result, I had my hockey medals out, and uh, so I think I really just had the that book award medal out because it's ridiculously big compared yeah. to my hockey medals, and uh, and I was making a bit of fun of that. I think so. That's probably why it's out. Yeah, anyway, congratulations on those on on the medals, and I'm sure that it will get many more awards down the future. So uh, for all the listeners, um, you, you've heard from Mark where to get it. Um, uh, you first get it at any bookstore, any. Um, Booktopia or similar Amazon site, um, and it's any on any audio book site that you care to go to, you'll find a fraction stronger. So yeah. I wish you well, Mark. Um, thank you so much for. Thank you, Alan. Goal. Can I can I just say the medals don't matter. The only thing that matters is if you know what it does for you when you reflect on your own strengths and capabilities or read it. That nothing else matters to me, and that's all that matter, should matter to you. Is is it? Is there some way this thought provokes for me and makes a, makes a positive impact in my life because it's written for no other purpose? Um, no, thank you so much for the time on the show, listeners. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. And just final thing, listeners, if you if you uh, when you get to the end of this um, podcast with Mark Berridge, if you liked what you heard, if you want to share um, your ratings and reviews, that will help um, a wider group of people across the world hear Mark Berridge's story if you just leave a rating or review on on any on any of the podcast streaming um, options that we've got with this interview, which include Apple, uh, Google and Spotify. So thank you, Mark. Thank that you so will, much. That, that, that will conclude our interview today. And um, I look forward to seeing you in the near future. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope uh, hope I haven't held you up to whatever's next. And I really, really appreciate the time on the show. And, and you're right, definitely went deeper on so many things. And I just appreciated that because um, even though you try and push deep on the, the book, that you can't include everything in the book, of course, and something's less relative, you know, relevant. Um, but it's sort of nice not just going, not it sounds wrong to say going over the same stuff all over again, but just to be able to take it to a different space and and I thought we covered some absolutely amazing stuff today. So thank you so much for the quality of the questioning and, and how you directed it around. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our interview with Mark Berridge. What is special about each person interviewed on the Courage to Lead interview series is we find out who our guest really is and how they were made, and ultimately how those foundations help the leader being interviewed deal with the situation they were faced with. In this case, Mark Berridge had and a horrific accident 
that threatened his life and his identity. Drawing on the foundations he had within his life, Mark used the power of support in the shape of family, acquaintance and his medical team. He used his power, power of his prior experiences as a negotiator, convincing his mind to reduce the gap in the challenges he's faced to become a fraction stronger every day. He left all of us with a story that can help us live our own lives to become a fraction stronger every day. If you want a copy of his book, A Fraction Stronger, it is available on all major online retailers and in bookshops everywhere, and also as an audiobook. Alternatively, you can also pick up a copy directly from markberridge.com.au forward slash shop. Thank you for listening today.